Is the independent practice of medicine under attack in the United States? Well, that depends on who you talk to. Some say yes, and others say we need even less independence. We'll discuss that and why polling in elections is so difficult. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. I hope you are as well. I am, and I'm glad to be back on the East Coast. Uh, to anyone that's joining us today that met us at the Ascent Conference in Portland, welcome to the program. Thanks for signing up for our emails. And uh, we hope you find it uh, as informative and enjoyable as we do in giving you this this production. Today we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about politics later in the program, but we're going to start with something that I think is fundamental to uh, healthcare here in the United States. And it's both in the way that we view the world as Americans, but also in the way that we view healthcare. And that's the independence of physicians. And I, Ron, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for the most part, it's there for patients. But there's also a very there's a few very good reasons why physicians, in their rights, have to be independent when they make medical medical decisions as well. Yeah, and, and this is a uh, you know an important topic about the independent practice of medicine, and and you know what does that really mean? Independent, um, definitely. Uh, when you get down to the patient level, how does that impact a physician making? clinical choices or recommendations for the patient. Um, I'll speak sort of personally first, and then I'll talk mm-hmm. about sort of what I think some of the, you know, the, the issues are around this. Personally, I think that the independent practice of medicine is one of the most important parts of how healthcare gets delivered. Because at its core, what it should mean, and what I think it does mean is that when I'm in that exam with that, with that physician, they're working for me, for what's in my best interest. Um, whether that is pursuing a certain clinical pathway or not, um, it's me and my doctor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there isn't somebody else sort of behind the scenes sort of pulling the strings. As you start to get away from the independent practice of medicine, whether that say that doctor is owned by a hospital, and I'll just use that as an example, mm-hmm. are they truly independent or does their employer be able to say, well, look, we really would like you to start doing this more? whether that's right for the patient or not. Um, And then you get down into other controls or other things that go away from that independent practice and you start to move away from the purity of the patient-physician relationship. So I think it's a really important thing. And and 
lack of independence or or guardrails or curtailing of that independence come in a lot of different forms. Who mm -hmm. the employer is, who that doctor works for, what sort of potential um, regulations or guidelines do they have to work under, and and for so for different people it means different things, and each one of them is important to really understand as you're in that exam room or in that um, doctor's office making decisions about your health moving forward. And I'm glad you brought up the employer aspect of it, who's employing the doctors, because that's not something that I that I necessarily thought of when we were putting together today's program. And it's interesting that even you would think that there would be a, a difference in care possibility when a physician is employed by a hospital as opposed to an independent practice. Well, and, and it it's one of those things where it's the potential for a problem. Mm -hmm. You sure. know, there's a lot of things where, um, you know, for example, judges will recluse themselves from a case because they had other right. involvement or a family member involved. It doesn't necessarily mean that judge isn't going to be impartial. It means that there's that concern that it might be. So just because a hospital owns a physician, that doesn't guarantee it's going to change what that physician does, but it's that appearance that they might be. So for example, let's say that uh, a hospital owns a physician and, and that hospital would make additional money if the physician sent patients to that hospital for certain services. Mm -hmm. But what if that physician didn't think that that was the best place for you to go, that somebody outside of the hospital was better equipped to deal with your issue? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the physician is going to bend to the will of their employer, but as long as that perception is there or that it might happen, it creates an uneasiness. Right. Again, just like why this judge, why a judge might say, look, I'm going to recruit myself from the case, even if that judge believes and would be impartial. I want to get rid of any of the appearance of any problem here. One um, critique that's come up in, in the news recently of, a, we, and we've talked about it before, which is the involvement of private equity money into healthcare. Mm -hmm. And there has been... Um, I don't want to say fear, but there there has been there there's been some reporting on how that might change uh, the patient provider relationship when the physician is now owned by you know a private equity company who is interested in making money. Is there any reason to be fearful of that if you were to see a physician that may or may not be owned by private equity, or is it again more of that appearance, but less, but it may not be an actuality. Well, I think there's a lot of data that supports that people should be concerned about that. Um, that there's a lot of data that shows that certain things increase um, in utilization um, when ownership gets into play, whether, whether it's a hospital or private equity or anyone else who might have a financial incentive outside of the, what's right for the patient. Um, there, there's reasons why physicians owning certain downstream referrals like imaging um, has certain governmental parameters around it to try to avoid that problem of putting profit before patient. Um, so I think there's a good reason to be concerned there. But again, I want to, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen with your doctor or your situation. The problem is you don't know mm -hmm. whether this is really what's right for you or is that doctor, and I'll just pick an example, recommending that you go get a CT scan because um, somebody is pushing them to do so for profit motivating reasons. Um, and some people say, well, you know, is it really harmful for me to get one more study? Well, it is because that CT scan gives off radiation. Um, and too many of those right. can have harmful side effects. So forget about, you know, if it's potentially spending unnecessary money, there can be real harms to overcare, just like there's real harms to undercare. 
Um, we what about what do you think about, for example, a similar thing? Amazon buying One Medical, and and as I'm looking up now, it's the deal is still on hold because the FTC is, as we discussed on a previous episode, is looking into it. Um, although it looks like Amazon's asking, uh, interesting, we're talking about recusals. Amazon's asking the uh, FTC chair to recuse herself yeah. because of her vocal criticism of the tech industry. But if for if it does that change? Do you think when it's a company like Amazon.com that may want to be more interested in revolutionizing healthcare in a way that may better fit patients and consumers? Or do you think that it's also that you got too many, you know, things to be worried about with a big company like that? Well, and it, it's one of those things where, um, you know, the, the purest of all pure would be everybody being completely independent and, sure. and immune from any financial um, incentives, positive or negative. And we all know that that real world doesn't exist. And so it's all like most things, shades of gray. So, you know, I think there ought to be questions whenever um, corporate or PE or anybody gets into the ownership of the practice of medicine. There ought to at least be questions. And those questions deserve to be answered. You know, when you talk about Amazon, does the benefit of them wanting to revolutionize and, and add tech to healthcare outweigh the risk of them, you know, being profit motivated and owning healthcare? I think that question needs to be asked. And another question that needs to be asked is, well, why do they have to own it to revolutionize it? Sure. I mean, couldn't they create the tech and then offer it or sell it to people who deliver healthcare? Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying I know the answer to those questions. They, they really should be investigated quite um, rigorously because it's different when we're talking about the delivery of healthcare than it is, you know, if Amazon, you know, royally screws up the shipping of my toilet paper to my house, nobody dies. Right. But boy, if you start really impacting healthcare the wrong way, you know, we have a whole lot negative, more negative consequences to it. One thing that we know, because and we deal with a lot of payer contracts with our different clients, one thing we know is there's almost always a clause in there that talks about how that there's nothing in the contract that will basically tell a physician how they're going to make their decisions and they need to make what's medically best for the patient. That's obviously an important thing. Um, how often is it followed, do you think? Well, here's the problem that I have with it. Now we're getting into sort of the amount of control that insurance companies mm -hmm. exhibit on the delivery of care. Um, and to me, this is a pretty serious issue because, and, and you know, I, again, I started my career working for insurance companies. And one of the things that we always used as our fail-safe sort of blanket get-out-of-jail-free card whenever the discussion of the provision of medicine came up was we said, look, all we're doing is deciding whether or not we're gonna pay the bill. We're not saying whether or not the patient should or should not get that. We're just making a determination on whether it's a covered benefit, mm -hmm. which is a whole lot of BS, okay? Right. Because here's the reality. If I'm suffering and I'm just gonna pick something, and, and, and this has happened, if I'm suffering from this really, you know, unfocused, unexplained, bad headache, okay? Mm -hmm. And my neurologist just can't for the life and figure it out. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow a path of a migraines. It's, it's you know, it's it doesn't lead, lend itself to really much of anything else. And, and my neurologist says, hey, Ron, I'm gonna get an MRI. Just make sure there's not something going on there. Now, the insurance company, if they deny that MRI, is gonna say, all we're doing is making a benefit determination. We're not saying whether or not you can have it or not. We're just saying, we're not gonna pay for it. Your employer right. hasn't decided to pay for this. Well, here's the reality. The vast majority of the people can't reach into their wallet and grab 
a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars to pay for that MRI. So what they're going to say is, well, then I guess I don't get it. So in fact, they are making a care decision. They're just hiding behind the legalities of, you know, it's a it's a money decision. Now, if I bleed out from a brain aneurysm two days later, the medical director at the insurance company can't be sued for malpractice. As a matter of fact, that medical director may or may not have a license to practice in the state that my doctor's in. And in all likelihood, they're not a neurologist. Mm-hmm. And they may be a internal medicine or a family practitioner. And they may be somebody who hasn't actually practiced medicine in the last 20 years. Okay. Well, they, in essence, in my opinion, made a care delivery decision because I can't afford to get it otherwise. That had a negative consequence on me but I can't sue them for malpractice. To me, that's a bit of a problem. And the insurance companies are fond of sort of hiding behind that shield, but in my opinion, they are making care decisions. Mm-hmm. And that really needs to be looked at. I wanna sw- switch a little bit to talking about a, a, what might be a political matter with regards to single payer healthcare. And we've talked about before on this program that if Bernie were elected president and the Democrats had full control of Congress, we would get Medicare for all. That would happen. You can bet mm-hmm. that Bernie Sanders would get would be have no problem getting rid of the filibuster mm-hmm. in order to pass Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And when you we have something like that in a single payer system, the government becomes the main payer, which means the government gets to make those particular decisions about whether or not they're going to pay for a particular um, thing. And we've seen in other countries, particularly in the United Kingdom in recent years, mm-hmm. where they have denied care um, to people that they have, you know, in m- many cases, it would be almost terminally ill um, children that have very serious diseases. And they've gotten it to the point where they wouldn't let the parents bring the children to other countries to receive care in other countries. Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about it in terms of the government, how is that going to change um that particular influence about the independent practice of medicine. Do you think that they would have medical directors in the same way that um, uh, we we have for for the insurance companies, or do you think it would work a little bit differently? Well, there's a great question on why uh, Medicare for All scares me. It's that no one's getting down to those level of detail. You know, how are we going to decide what's covered and not covered? You know, currently, for example, Medicare does have coverage policies on what Medicare covers. So those are going to be the same coverage policies. Okay. How are they decided? Is there a review process? Is there an appeal process? Um, we don't know any of those things. So it, it could be, could be, and I know this will shock some of our listeners, it could be better than our current system if it's done better. Mm-hmm. You know, the one problem that we have in the current system is the care that you get, what's covered or not covered or approved or not approved, can change based on who your insurance company is, mm-hmm. which is really bizarre when you think about it, that two people with the exact same presentation, one of them is going to get something, the other one isn't, just because of the card in their wallet and what company's on it. Well, that could go away. You know, Medicare would be the final arbiter, and we would have at least consistency. Right. And that may be better. Um, they may do a better job of it. There's a concern right now that you know, some of the for-profit insurance companies that those medical directors are denying things just to try to make a better bonus. Those things have been actually kind of proven in court um, with medical directors sort of testifying to that ability. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no profit motivation to Medicare. So again, it could be better or it could be horribly worse, you know, because of one single payer system, if, you know, if a, uh, 
administration or the Congress decides that the budget's getting blown a little bit and they start ratcheting down on some of the things they cover mm-hmm. for monetary reasons. So it remains to be seen, um, and none of those details are out on any of that Medicare for All stuff, which is a little scary. I, I do know that in, in Britain's NHS system, they have referred some healthcare decisions to the court system. Um, and I'm specifically thinking of, of um, a case a few years ago of, of a, I think he was an infant. It was, his name was Charlie Gard. And the court decided that they weren't going to provide the care. Do you think that something like that would happen in the U.S.? Or do you think it would almost, quote unquote, strictly stay with a medical approach? Well, and if you think about how how litigious a society we are, mm-hmm. especially compared to right. you know a lot of European countries, oh, it would most absolutely happen. The question is, would it be successful or not? And one of the concerns about you know sending things through the court system is the amount of time it takes. And some of these clinical decisions, you don't have that kind of time. Mm-hmm. You know, so oh, I think you know if if Medicare for all passed and they started imposing a single sort of um, uh, you know care delivery protocol for certain things or coverage decisions, you know, the lawyers would line up to sue for it, Mm -hmm. um, whether they were right or wrong. And then the question comes is suing the federal government. That, that would be the other concern that I would have with that. Right. And there, you know, there have been, uh, areas where that's been successful. I mean, you know, it just, it becomes difficult. Mm -hmm. I want to turn now staying with, I want to stay with this, I, uh, topic of, you know, provider, provider independence, mm-hmm. um, because it's important. But I want to turn to two issues now where where you have kind of two, I would argue these are both political issues, but you have two sides arguing that either one, we already have too much interference from mm-hmm. the federal government in our doctors making decisions. And then another, we have arguing, uh, we don't have enough and we do need more so that we have better um, oversight and less discrimination right. and such. And I want to start with the first one. And it, of course, it's going to come back to the COVID pandemic because that's how everything has been politicized in the last couple of years in this country. Um, but you have a number of physicians that have argued that the public health officials were relied on too much during the COVID-19 pandemic. And because of that, you didn't have the independent practice of medicine, particularly when it came to things like uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, mm-hmm. denying the COVID vaccines, mm-hmm. um, all those sorts of different treatment plans and, and vaccination plans. Do you think that there was, we lost physician independence because of the COVID-19 pandemic, because of the things that the public health officials were saying? Oh, I, I absolutely not. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. completely disagree with that. Um, the independent practice of medicine does not mean without, um, guidelines. It doesn't mean whatever the hell you want. You know, um, well before COVID, there are restrictions on what physicians can and cannot do based on the clinical evidence to either support or or not support it. You know, you wouldn't be able to, and I'll take the extreme example, you wouldn't be able to go into a hospital and say, you know what, I think what my patient needs is a good leeching and a good bloodletting. And that's in my independent clinical opinion. You have to let me do it. Um, you wouldn't be able to go into a hospital and say, "Hey, you know, I know that the, you know, that the clinical information suggests that I shouldn't give five times the recommended dosage of an opioid." But you know what? I'm a doctor, and I get to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You can't do that stuff. Okay, that's been there for a long, long time. 
Now, what happened with COVID is it became highly politicized. Right. And suddenly the doctors, well, they're not letting me practice medicine. No, what we're not letting you do is fly in the face of what is the best information that we have and actually do harm to patients. And the instant that something, the information that we have says it does harm to patients and provides no clinical value, you can't do it. So that's the part that I think got sort of really, really screwed up here mm -hmm. is they were trying to claim the flag of independence when that really wasn't the issue. Um, and, and it's not just germane to, um, you know, to healthcare. You know, if your mm -hmm. CPA said to you when you're flying your taxes, look, I'm a CPA and my independent decision is that the federal government doesn't have the legal right to collect taxes and we're just not going to submit them. Right. A CPA that does that loses their license. Mm -hmm. You know, same thing if your lawyer says, hey, you know, you don't have to actually do that. I'm a lawyer and I get to tell you that that's my advice. You can lose your license because you're doing what's their version of malpractice. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I really, uh, as you can tell, it sort of makes my blood boil when people go, well, they're keeping us from practicing medicine. No, no, they're keeping you from practicing bad medicine. Right. And, and that's why I wanted to, to pick your brain about this today. Cause it's, it's a, a topic of ongoing conversation. I keep seeing ink spilled or I guess, you know, words written on the internet spilled yeah. about this particular issue. Um, one thing that's happening right now is the, uh, state of California, I, I, now I don't recall if it's become law yet or if it's still in their state legislature, but they were working on um, getting a thing done that you wouldn't, you would, the, the uh, California State Medical Board would remove the licensure of doctors who were speaking out against, the, the critics said speaking out against COVID and COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. But I think what they really meant was, you know, prescribing things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for things that clinically don't make sense in this instance. Mm -hmm. Um that's not censorship, is it? Well, I, so I don't think so. The way that typically these things are being pursued, the stuff that I'm seeing is they're not censoring the doctor on having a discussion with their patient. What they're saying is you are knowingly, willingly providing bad advice, things that do harm, um, and that that really is no different than, you know, um, showing up to the OR drunk and then the patient dies on the table or mm -hmm. prescribing something that is truly out of off label and of the wrong dosage or things like, you know, you are acting in a way with knowledge um, that is um, bad patient care and puts the patient at risk. And for that, yes, it's our job to, you know, to potentially censor you or limit your license or pull your license, mm -hmm. which would be no different than what they would do to somebody who walks into an OR drunk or um, provides, uh, you know, uh, the wrong medication or the wrong dose of medication. Um, it's how that, that profession polices itself, much like, you know, lawyers can be disbarred mm -hmm. and CPAs can lose their license a, a, as well as other professions. Similarly, right now, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons is um, filing a lawsuit against a couple of the um, boards of medicine, including the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the American Board of Family Medicine um, in Southern District Court of Texas, or U.S. District Court of Southern District of Texas. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, and they're talking about the same issue that they they wrote in their lawsuit that these uh, organizations, these boards have wrongly misused their authority 
in a politically partisan manner to chill speech critical of positions taken by Dr. Fauci, lockdowns, masks, mask mandates, COVID vaccines, and abortion. Um, these boards are talking about, again, same sort of thing we talked about in California, removing the licensure of some of these physicians mm-hmm. who are advocating for certain things. I haven't heard anything on the abortion front, so removing that, same sort of question here to you about how is it different when it's some of these medical boards as opposed to you know the state of California? As far as this Association of yeah. American Physicians, are, well, for, yeah. first of all, this is one of my favorite organizations. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the the Association of American Physicians because it sounds like the AMA or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology mm-hmm. or the and it's not. Okay. okay, so let's just <laughs> let's just let's identify some of the hits sure. of this organization. Then you'll ask yourself, are they really bringing a, a, a valid point to the argument here? So first of all, this is an incredibly political organization. Right. It's not. Yeah. It, it is highly ultra right wing. It's been around since 1943, and they've got a really nice hit list of things that they have taken positions on. Um, uh, they take a position uh, anti-abortion because they claim that there is a strong clinical correlation between abortion and breast cancer. Now, there is not a single valid clinical study that suggests that, but mm-hmm. they do that. Um, they take a position on gun control. Well, gun control, what does that have to do with healthcare? Well, they actually say that guns save lives and that there's no um, rational idea why guns should, guns should be a public health problem. Okay. They've also taken the position against Social Security. Okay, this is a potentially clinical organization that takes a position against Social Security and oppose the establishment of Medicare or Medicaid. Okay, I have a hard time sort of drawing the line between clinical and, you know, Social Security. Um, they have, oh God, they've done it. Oh, one of their other favorite ones is, um, and this is near to my heart because I have a son with autism. They were mm-hmm. big on the whole vaccines cause autism. Right. No clinical data that shows that. They were big into the whole hydroxy and all of that stuff, which is problematic. Um, at one point, they came, they uh, uh, put out a, a doctored, clearly doctored picture that showed uh, Barack Obama as a witch doctor. Um, they actually, one of my favorite ones is they said that he was captivating his audiences with speech through hypnosis. That was a good one. Um, they you know, don't I just, like, you know, I just thought he was a good orator for a little Yeah, I, you know, heck, that's a, I mean, I didn't know I was being hypnotized every time I heard him. Um, they are against electronic medical records because they feel like the government steals all your data. Um, they said they had an immigration policy about leprosy which was really interesting. Hmm. So my point is, these folks are pretty well down the uh, the conspiracy theory scenario. So when I first saw that they were filing a lawsuit, I was like, well, that doesn't surprise me. And I just sort of dismissed even reading about it sure. because of, of, of where they come from. So, and again, I, what makes me think is I go back to this whole thing about saying, look, um, I, I definitely don't like government overreach. I think we need to be very careful about that kind of stuff. But these entities, whether it's the state or whether it's the licensing boards, et cetera, somebody needs to make sure that we're policing physicians so they don't go completely off the reservation. And when you talk about something like hydroxy, when the studies were finally done and they had the actual good clinical studies that had both a, you know, a, a 
placebo group, if you will, and then a control group, a control group in the group. Mm -hmm. What they determined was there was zero benefit from hydroxy and there was actual clinical risk to cardiac issues. Mm -hmm. That's when the, when the guides from the FDA switched to, no, you can't use this. We're not trying to curtail independent practice. We're saying this hurts people. And this group went nuts and said, well, I get to prescribe whatever I want to. And my answer to that is, no, you do not. Not mm -hmm. when the best information that we have shows that it hurts people. You don't get to do that. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned all of that because I, I did want to bring up this organization because to a lot of people, it does sound like the AMA mm -hmm. based yeah. off their name. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because whenever I've seen people criticize anything related to COVID, either in this or in other mediums, they've always mentioned this organization. And what people don't seem to realize is exactly what you just said about this organization is that they are just, they're one of these weird things that sounds like one thing and they're not. Yeah. Um, it would be totally different if the AMA were suing oh. these, these organizations and then we yeah. would take it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's interesting to see because these people are cited by a number of physicians, including this column yeah. piece that we're reading here, and I'll make sure it's posted in the show notes, by um, an epidemiologist uh, at uh, Yale, Yale School of Public Health. Mm -hmm. Oh, one thing I did want to bring up before yeah. I f forgot about it was, was the other side of this argument that we don't have enough um, uh, government oversight. We don't have enough um, sort of restrictions on the independence practice of medicine. And this was an article pub published in Kaiser Health News and the Daily Beast this week. Um, about particularly racial discrimination when it comes to certain healthcare um, decisions. And I'm not making a comment here on whether or not, you know, there are racial disparities. I think that there probably are based off of the data that I've seen in certain instances. And I do think that there should be something done in order to help um, correct that. Um, but in the article that's mentioned here, they talk about a, um, a black patient who was not given a um, kidney transfer. Or excuse me, a liver transfer mm. uh, to treat um, his Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he ended up um, dying because of his liver problems. Mm -hmm. And the article seems to point that to that his physician had just kind of dismissed that he would actually be healthy enough to take the liver transfer and to treat it well enough, and it would prolong his life. And they seem to think that there ought, there ought to be some sort of oversight here into determining how those decisions are made. Is there already oversight there when it comes to something as serious as uh, organ transfers? Well, um, sort of yes and no. Sure. Um, and, and this is one of those things where there's never going to be perfect, mm -hmm. you know, and especially when you get down to the individual patient, the anecdotal, um, you know, that balance of enough oversight, but not too much. Um you know, one of the questions that always comes to this. So first of all, we know, we know that there is, has been and continues to be both racial and, and sex bias in diagnosis. Mm -hmm. We we know that from, you know, females get diagnosed less with cardiac disease than males do. There's, there's differences on what happens at a macro level between African-American and, mm -hmm. and whites, et cetera. Um, so we know that exists. We also know that it's getting better that over time those biases go away as physicians get more information as the studies come out. But you take a look at like the example. I don't know if this person didn't get referred because he was African-American or because this doctor was lazy or right. not very good. Um, now the question becomes, should you have this sort of mandatory oversight when there are literally millions of these decisions that get made every day? And how mm -hmm. would you do it? 
the right now, the sort of the potential for oversight on something like this is the second opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's not used enough. Uh, not enough people feel comfortable with it. Some physicians don't feel comfortable with it. But I tell friends and family members all the time, if you have the least bit of uncertainty or uncomfortness, ask for a second opinion. First of all, my litmus test is every physician that I've ever met who I think is very good has no problem with second opinion. They'll actually offer it if they see the patient getting uncomfortable, okay? Mm -hmm. Because A, they want the patient to get what's right for them, and B, they're probably pretty confident in their own skills and that the second opinion is going to come up with the same thing, okay? Mm -hmm. But as a patient, you can always demand that. You know, if you don't think that they're listening to you, if they don't think that they're putting enough in, that's exactly what you should do. And, and Grant, I'm not trying to throw this back on the, what happened to this poor individual. It's, right. it's horrible. But um, that was one of the things that could have happened. A family member would have, could have said, you know what, we think that, that we hear where you come from. We'd like to seek a second opinion. And that second opinion might have said, boy, I think this might be a liver issue. We should probably refer you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of the things that's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be on either side of the coin too much or not enough. And, and yeah, there's definitely racial and sex bias and diagnosis. We just got to keep getting better every day. Mm-hmm. And we are. No, that makes sense. And I, and I appreciate your comments on that. And that absolutely makes sense. And it's something that information and education and, and, um, recognizing our own biases in certain instances, it's, it's important to do that, uh, as difficult as it can be, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes towards kind of some that wrap the segment up specifically about COVID, there really isn't sort of a government, you know, crack down on the independent practice of medicine. No, no, there really isn't. And, and, and the government, whether it's the CDC or the FDA, et cetera, um, cause a lot of times they'll get accused of the, the crackdown and saying, well, you, you switched your position. Yeah, of course we did. This was a novel virus. We started out not knowing anything. Um, and the more we learned, the more we had to adjust our position. I keep, I remind people in every day to talk about, well, you know, for a while you could use hydroxy and now you can't. Yeah. Cause we learned more about it, mm-hmm. you know, and if you want to do that whole, well, we used to be able to, well, you used to have leeches and bloodletting. We don't do that anymore. You know, and hopefully what we're doing today for some disease will be dramatically different than mm-hmm. what in two years from now when we learn even more. Right. We'll make sure we've got both of these articles linked in the show notes at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. I want to turn now to uh, politics and spend our last little bit of time talking about politics, as we are often to do in a midterm year. Uh, I came across this article today from Ron, and I sent it to you. In, in, it's from Politico, and mm-hmm. they're reporting that pollsters are fear they're screwing it up again. And I think we've been saying this now for a couple of months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think. And, and not not because they intend or they're being sloppy or whatever. Um, I would not want to have my job or livelihood tied to an accuracy of predicting an election right now by doing sort of the, the standard sample polling. Sure. Cause I, I think it's, you know, I'd, I'd rather try to, you know, 
predict the winner of the next Kentucky Derby than do this because mm -hmm. it's it's become a very difficult thing to do. And you have, of course, now you have the added problem of we don't we still don't really know what the Trump effect is on Republican voters and people running in the Republican Party. Without a doubt, Trump-backed Republicans have won more than uh, more moderate Republicans in their primaries. And there's some debate about whether or not the Democrats were propping that up. But at the same token, the Democrats propped up Trump back in 2016 thinking they could beat him and they didn't. Uh, and that shocked everyone. Um, we're coming up. Uh, we're just over a month from the midterms now. Um, right now, it's looking like Republicans are still favored to win the House. The mm -hmm. Senate looks a little bit closer. Uh, Sabato's crystal ball right now has Democrats at 49 and Republicans at 49, with two states being a toss-up, and those states being Nevada and Georgia. Um how much do you think we can, when, when we look at something like this right now with it being this close, do you think it's worthwhile to even bother looking at polling or do you think we should kind of dismiss it and say whatever? I will tell you from my perspective, and, and this comes from a guy who, you know, I mean, I'm an economist by training. I've, I've got a, you know, my minor and my master's degree is statistics. So I like this stuff. Oh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't bet 10 bucks on it. Um, I think we've got a number of factors here that make the process of polling almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, what we're trying to do at its core in polling and what was successful really for a long period of time is take a very small sample of people. Mm -hmm. You know, there were what, like 151 million votes cast in the last presidential election? Yeah. You know, and you didn't see polls that included a million respondents. You know, it'd be 300 respondents. Mm -hmm. Take a very small sample of people and, and know that what we're getting is the right cross-section. We're getting this many men, this many women, this mm -hmm. many people college educated, this many. And then know that what we're going to get is an actual honest response to the poll. So the, the sampling has to be structured and random, and the response has to be accurate. Mm -hmm. What we've got now is a very difficult way to get structured in random samples because the most effective way that to be done it is the landline telephone. Well, we've got a huge part of the population that doesn't have or even answer their landline. Mm -hmm. All right, so they're now excluded. Well, are, is that population more or less likely to vote a certain way? Because if they are more or less likely to vote a certain way, we've now just skewed whatever sample we're going to get. And because of how on both sides, not a how vitriol some of the reaction has been. There's been a lot. There's been studies that show that some people don't even answer honestly because they they well, you know, I don't want to say I'm pro-Trump or I don't want to say I'm against Trump or I don't want to be called a liberal. I don't want to mm -hmm. be called this, and so they sort of give a random answer. Well, now we've got even we don't even have the the nice the nice randomly structured sample, but we get a false answer. Mm -hmm. Well. You get a false answer from only a few people on a polling of 300 respondents, and the whole thing's invalid. Right. And I think we saw that happen in the last couple of elections. Um, the other thing I, I strongly urge folks who look at, well, in the primaries, but primaries are not general. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's an entirely different animal on both sides. Yeah. You know, um, winning a primary means you were the most. Um, person who was like the people who vote in primaries, which isn't what a general election looked like. 
And, and this is also true, and I mean, I know he got burned when he said it, but he was being very honest. You know, when Romney said something about, well, you know, all elections are really decided by a very small percentage of the people in the middle, he's right. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do in primaries because a lot of those people that are independents, et cetera, who can vary either way, don't vote in primaries. Right. Um, so you could argue that even the most important people aren't who you get in those samplings yep. or in that primary election. So, you know, when I think of all the things that could go wrong with what, you know, what how polling is supposed to work, oh, I'll be surprised if they're anywhere close to accurate. Right. You know? So in, so we'll have to take a look at that now because I pulled up uh, Real Clear Politics while you were discussing that. And they have um, the same layout. Actually, it's slightly different now that I'm looking at it for um, – um, the 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 Senate map they have 48 for Democrats and 52 for Republicans when it comes out with Georgia and Nevada being pickups for the Republicans mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to toss-ups for the uh, over on uh, Sabato's crystal ball um, at the same time the generic congressional ballot has Democrats up by 0.3 um, so that's quite close granted you're talking about generic people and not anyone um, in particular you know, it's interesting because of this political article they talked about um, how the, the pollsters are probably getting it wrong. And it's there, it looks like that's sort of what's happening is the same thing that happened in 2016. But at the same time, you have a lot of pollsters that seem very confident about um, their data, in particular, mm -hmm. Nate Silver, who I like, mm -hmm. over at 538.com. And he's talked about how the polls are not showing a GOP bounce back. That being said... That's what it said in 2016 at the same time. There's like, oh, there's no way that Trump was going to win the election. I think they gave Trump like a 5% chance of winning, yeah. and he still won. Right. Um, I don't know if you had time to look over Nate Silver's piece, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious what you think about um, his analysis that there's that there really isn't going to be this GOP rush um, coming up here in uh, November. Well, so I think a couple things. Um, definitely, there are very smart people, and Nate's one of them. Mm -hmm. that do this stuff and they are trying their best to make every adjustment that they can. So I don't think they're just throwing darts at a dartboard here. And I think they've made some significant improvements in how they do polling now compared to how it used to be done to try to adjust for some things I just talked about. Now it's still an incredibly difficult thing to do. I wouldn't expect any of them to go, you know, because it's their whole industry. I wouldn't expect him to go, hey, you know what, flip a coin. Who do we, what do we know? Right. So, of course, they're going to come out and be confident. And it's one of those things where, you know, the the proof's going to be in the pudding. Um, now, if it turns out exactly the way Nate says, maybe he's a genius. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he just got lucky. You know right. what I mean? Um you know, it, you know, I could come out with some really strong statements about, you know, what I think it's going to be based on nothing, and I might be right. Mm -hmm. um, not that I was was good at it. So, um, again, from my, I'd love to see him be more accurate because I just I sort of nerd out and like this stuff. But you know, if I were in Vegas, I ain't betting any of my money on this because right. I just don't think it's it's. We're at a point where we can really easily do that right now. And because as we talked about, as you mentioned before, when we were talking about the, the quality of the polls, you're right that no one has a landline anymore. Right. Um, and most of the time when I get a phone call from on my cell phone that doesn't have a caller ID, I don't answer it. And then it's if they leave yeah. a message, I'll get back to them. And if not, that's just that's that. Um, we've I've looked at different possibility of Internet pollings. And I know um, 
I don't remember if it was 538 or if it was one of these other ones that kind of they ranked um, the quality of different polling and how they weighted it in their average. And there were some out there that were internet only. I think SurveyMonkey was one of them. Yeah. SurveyMonkey, they gave like an F minus rating for the quality of their polling because it's so, you know, you have no way of verifying who it actually is. So it doesn't yeah. rank at all when they put it in their average. Right. I, you would think that with the advent of the internet, we would have a better way of doing um polling for these sorts of things in a way that most people are going to use. Yeah, and we just haven't figured it out yet. Um, you know, we just don't have the, the tool yet. I mean, it, it's definitely, you can get access to a lot of people. It's a lot easier than answering a phone. Um, it's hard to structure it so you're getting the right people. It's because, you know, there's those qualifiers up front when you're on the phone that, mm -hmm. you know, how old are you? What's your level of education? So they get you right. qualified. But it's just really difficult to do. Are you a likely voter or yeah. are you a, or are you yeah. a, yeah. Yeah. And all those are self-reported. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I could, I could get on the phone with these people and say, I'm an 18 year old girl and they'd go ahead and mark it down and let me continue to ask. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing to keep in mind and, and like, you know, you take real clear politics and, and again, these are, these are smart people who are trying to get it right. You know, they've got like 11 of their top Senate races. Okay. Mm -hmm. Six of the 11, more than half are inside the margin of error. Yeah. So as a statistician, even though they show, well, this is who's going to win. I'll pick my state, North Carolina. They're showing yeah. the Republican Bud to win. He's got a two-point favorability or two-point lead. That's inside the margin of error. So as a statistician, I would look at more than half of these races and say, I cannot give you a prediction because it's inside the margin of error, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that I, I'm just as likely wrong as I am right. So... You know, they've got this thing where they're showing, you know, this is what it's going to look like, et cetera. Well, if all those six flipped one way or the other, now we got a dramatically look different looking Senate. Mm -hmm. And I could say, and that wasn't a failure of the polling. The polling told you that they couldn't make a prediction that right. was inside. And some of them where they're calling them, you know, well, I'm going to predict it this way or another. Like, you know, we're talking about like Wisconsin. That's a point and a half right. that they're showing right now. Well, that's mm -hmm. way inside, you know. And I, I am looking at it too, and I'm wondering how they've determined this because on their, their their Senate races, they also have um, how the polls underestimated certain political parties in, in previous elections. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking at it. Most of these have got GOP uh, underrepresented. So, for example, mm -hmm. for Ohio, they've got you know JD Vance is up by two and a half points. Well, they also are saying that right. well GOP is underestimated by eight percent right. in this polling. So really, right. he's up by ten. I don't know. Now, I, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that's a new thing that they have added in this election. Yeah. And I don't know how accurate we can trust something like that. Well, it's it, and this will be probably the first time to determine how accurate that is. So and it's a lot more complicated than this, trust me. But the basic premise is they take a look at previous polls compared to after the election happens. We know what really happened mm -hmm. and they look for either inverse or positive correlations you know did somebody get overrepresented or somebody underrepresented you know and one of the premises for example is if i am a you know a and it goes both ways if i'm a a trump supporter in a nor in a largely liberal environment i'm probably underrepresented because i'm not likely to answer the question as truthfully just mm -hmm. like if i'm a a you know a you know, a liberal in a largely conservative population. Sure. I might yeah. not answer that either. So they're trying to look for, oh, well, we missed by the, more than this many points. 
it looks like this party is either overrepresented or underrepresented, and then they apply that same methodology to what's happening in the polling now. And that may be, we don't know because we've not had this enough, that may be a wonderful thing to do and it may be highly accurate. Or it could be completely wrong and we'll find out probably in this presidential election because this is the first time that kind of stuff has been done as widely as it is now. Mm -hmm. And it's well, the old thing of, you know, my, my one of my statistics professors used to say, just always remember, just because it rained yesterday doesn't mean it's going to rain tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say that I will. I, I'm beginning to understand now why certain people just threw up their hands and say, "Well, the election was stolen," because it's a whole lot easier to explain that than it is to <laughs> yeah. to kind of try to explain some of this polling. Because I, a lot of those people will look at the polling and say, "Look, the polling said this thing, but then this happened, and right. therefore it's rigged." And and right. as we're talking about here, it doesn't work like that. It just no. it's not as accurate as it as it should be, or was, or could be, I suppose. Well, and we and we got for so many years, we got so used to really to a large degree knowing the, you know, the results of a presidential election before it happened. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, we go back to what Truman and Dewey, you know, yeah. it was probably the, the last time, it, you know, it, it really didn't work out the way that everybody thought it was going to until you got to, you know, Trump Hillary, Trump Clinton. Yep. And everybody went, holy crap, we thought Clinton was going to win. Mm -hmm. And then to a large degree, the, the, you know, the Trump-Biden, people, most of the polls either had Trump winning or having it be a very close race. I don't know of any poll that had it the kind of blowout that it actually was. And mm -hmm. so this is a new phenomenon for us as a society, of, but I thought that wasn't supposed to happen. And now right. some people are like, and it happened twice. Oh, it's got to be all bogus. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Rather than things have changed. It Connecting it with our previous conversation, mm -hmm. how do, um, regardless of what the outcome is, mm -hmm. how do political outcomes in general affect the independence of physicians? I mean, you talk about yeah. whether or not Republicans are in control or Democrats in control or if it's mixed. What happens to physicians and what happens to their ability to practice medicine? Well, there's, there's sort of three scenarios here, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'll pick the middle one first. The middle sure. scenario is divided government. If we come out of this with um, anything less than the Democrats controlling the, the Senate, the House, and the presidency, probably not much happens because not much will get done. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be in, in sort of logjam time. Okay. Um, if we come out of it with um, strong control of the, the Republican side, let's say the Republicans take the House and the Senate, and we've got you know, two more years of a Democrat administration and Republican House and Senate, probably not a whole lot happens to physicians because, you know, nobody's predicting that the Republicans will end up with enough in the Senate to override a veto. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're probably still in lockjam there. Now, if we come out of this with strong Democrat control of the Senate, the House, and still controlling the presidency, which obviously will happen, uh, meaning the presidency, not the others. Mm -hmm. Then there's a real challenge or a real risk. People are worried about, and this would happen if it were the other scenario. Anytime a party has control of everything and is in their last two years of, of administration, there's always the concern about they're going to jam stuff through that they want to get through while they still can. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then that could be bad. You know, um, what if, you know, Biden 
bent to the pressures of, of the far left and said, fine, let's do Medicare for all. We got it. It's our last chance to get it done. Right. You know, we've got enough in the Senate. I'll get rid of the filibuster. Let's rock and roll and let's do this thing. All right. That's problematic. Um, in all likelihood, that's not going to happen because Biden is kind of old school and he doesn't really want to get rid of the filibuster, but it could happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, any dramatic interaction, and this could be the Republicans saying, hey, we're going to open up all the, we're going to deregulate the whole thing. Anybody can own a doctor that wants to, and we're going to get into the more of the corporate practice of medicine. That could be bad. Mm -hmm. All the way to the other end of the political spectrum, which is let's do Medicare for all, and we'll tell you how to practice and what's going to be covered, which would be bad in my opinion. Well, if any of those happen, I'll be sure to ask you about them. Yeah, if any of those <laughs> if any of those happen, you'll have to wait till I sober up because I'm going to be depressed and get drunk first. So, you know, do it do it in the hangover after, not when I'm still drinking. Okay. Sounds good. I appreciate that. Thanks, Ron, for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. For our final thought this week, we have some good news for international travelers like me. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced this week that Canada will be ending all of its remaining COVID-19 border restrictions. This includes the requirement to show proof of vaccination, random testing and quarantine, and perhaps the best for me, the requirement to fill out all of your travel information in the ArriveCan app three days before you arrive. Also included in the new order is the removal of mask requirements in airports, on airplanes, and on trains. Canada was one of the last Western countries to still have many of these restrictions, and the lifting of those restrictions is both good for tourism and trade. Where I live near Detroit, we have one of the busiest commercial border crossings with Canada. It's at the Ambassador Bridge. Buffalo, New York also has several large border crossings. Now Midwesterners can cut three hours off their drive to New York City, and I can take my weekend trip to Toronto. The COVID-19 restrictions were necessary early on in the pandemic, without a doubt. We didn't know what we were dealing with, and we didn't want to make it worse. But it's good to see Canada come around to a decision the rest of the world made months ago. The restrictions are ending this Saturday. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.